Hi, my name is Eric Lupol with Two Guys in the Bible. On today's episode, we will be addressing a topic that is a bit deeper and darker uh, than some of the other topics that we've addressed before, uh, and that's the topic of abortion. Um, we have talked about it previously when we interviewed Doc Christensen, uh, but today we're going to be looking at uh, things like the, the New York uh, law that was passed uh, recently regarding uh, late-term abortion and perhaps even infanticide. So uh, that topic, we're going to be uh, touching on some, uh, some difficult uh, subject matter. So if you have small children with you, this might not be the best episode to uh, listen with them. Uh, but if you do listen uh, to it with them, it would also be an opportunity to address a very uh, important topic that uh, one day our children will need to, to learn about. So uh, thank you again for listening. Welcome to Two Guys in a Bible. This is a weekly conversation on theology, culture, and God's Word. My name is Dylan Keniston, and I am joined by my co-host, Eric Leupold. How are you doing this I'm morning, brother? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm coming over the end of a little cold or something, so if my voice gives out, you understand why. No, I, I don't get it. You no, don't get I'm it? Not, that's no. not okay, man. I'm, I'm sorry. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no worries. The show must go on. The show must go on. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been, it's been a busy couple of weeks uh, on my end as well. So um, it's moving and whatnot. Um, but oh, yeah, that's right. Had some help um, on that. So we're very grateful for yeah, that. So anyway. We're for deacons. Yeah, praise God, man. Um, so today we're, we're talking about um, kind of a, a weightier subject. And I think this one, I don't know that we'd like necessarily had this one planned or kind of on the, it was on the kind calendar. Of off the cuff. Um, but, but, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on and, and, and a lot of national conversation um, around certain uh, laws uh, that were recently um, signed. I think one in particular by Virginia, one by New York. And so what we're going to be diving into today is kind of revisiting some of the top the topic of abortion I know we covered some of this with doc we did. Um, but kind of revisiting it in in light of some of these some of these new laws and some of the changes that they introduced some of which uh, in in one sense maybe we'll get into this maybe the laws didn't uh, change too much with respect to abortion law but they did have some pretty significant implications on personhood and so we'll, we'll get into some of that so one of the angles we're we're looking at today is kind of how the uh, abortion uh, laws and some of those uh, most recent proceedings tie into uh, Moloch worship. So it, mm-hmm. it, some of the parallels are are striking. Um, so I, I guess let's let's start there, right? So what was Moloch worship in the Old Testament, and and you know does it exist today? Yeah. So <laughs> um, this is our series on our idolatry, and I think that's why. We decided to kind of throw this one in there. We weren't really planning on talking about idolatry of Moloch, but um, uh, the thing is, is that uh, we, you know, it kind of fits in. You know, it's an idol is anything that you know you're worshiping or, or serving instead of God. Um, and back in the ancient Near East, there was a god uh, named Moloch. Um, and I want to do a, a, a quick history of it. And then maybe we can try to see where there might be some kind of connection today. All right, so, you know, I did some research on Moloch. So, all right, who is Moloch? Well, okay, then the, first of all, the name, uh, the Bible calls him Moloch. But it seems like perhaps the uh, ancient Amorites, and, and that was their primary deity, 
the Amorites were one of the uh, people that lived in the land, um, they, and they lived they lived in what is now modern day Jordan. Uh, they lived east of um, the Dead Sea and east of Jerusalem. But you know, prior to Israel entering into the land, the Amorites were kind of hanging out there with the Canaanites, the Moabites, the the Amorites, and the Hittites. So you know, there's a lot of ites going on there. <clears throat> um, but their chief their chief god was called Milcom. Which meant great king. Great king. Yeah. Milcom, Malcolm, M A L K A M or M I L C O M. There's different ways to pronounce it, um, but for whatever, however it worked out, whether it's the with the change of the Hebrew language or, or whatnot, the Israelites referred to him as Moloch, uh, M O L E C C H or M O L O Moloch or Molech. Um, but either way, so in, in Hebrew too, like Melech is MLK. Is king. Yeah, yeah, because remember there were no vowels. Yeah, exactly. Per se, it was yep. just three consonants. M L K. Yeah. So you know, the way you can, Melech means king. Mm-hmm. So either way, he means means king, means great king. And what I read was, um, and I'll, I I want to read the first passage. There's, there's three main passages from Scripture that I want to bring up, and the first one is is from Leviticus chapter twenty. And this is obviously when God is giving the law to Israel before they enter the land. And here's what he says in Leviticus 20, verses 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Moloch, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and I will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. And that is the language that's used there. So, okay, that doesn't really give us too many details. I mean, the idea is a, a giving of some kind of a, ch- of a child to Moloch. And that's where I want to kind of bring up two other passages. Uh, the next one is Second Kings uh, 23. Uh, this is uh, with uh, King Josiah. When he comes in as, uh, as the king, he kind of purges the land of most of the idolatry that's taking place. Uh, and so here's Here's what he says, uh, starting in verse 10. And he, so and so Josiah, and he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. Okay, so there you get some more context. There's this place called Topheth. It's in the valley of Hinnom, and there's burning of children being done there. And then the third passage that I wanted to bring up is from Ezekiel. Now, this is where uh, he is seeing in some of his visions uh, things that are going on there. But in Ezekiel 23, 37, Ezekiel, this is what he says. Um, oh, I'll start in verse 36. This is where the Lord talks to um, Ezekiel. It says, The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Oholah and Oholabah? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had 
born to me. And he goes on, Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary in the same day and profaned my Sabbath. For when they had slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. Okay, so I'll stop there. But we see in these three passages something going on. Um, Moloch's this, this god of the Amorites. People are offering children to him. It involves burning and it involves sacrifice and killing. And there seems to be a sense in which this child is offered up as food um, for the idols. Now, uh, so I, when I did some more research in it, I, I read things that it's possible that, that the priests that were, um, were sacrificing the children would, would ceremonially eat a part of the burnt offering, or they would kind of feed it to the statue that they were, they were serving, the statue of Moloch uh, there. Um, and as far as Moloch himself, I, I've heard and read that it was basically this, this ox, ox-headed kind of uh, a god. And that kind of deity was a god of, um, of fertility and of, of the harvest. So uh, the idea was that a, a family or an Amorite would, would, would sacrifice their children to Moloch in order to gain Moloch's blessing. And Moloch would bless that family with more children in the future and economic prosperity, mm. a good harvest and things like that. And if you didn't do that, if you didn't appease Moloch with a child sacrifice, you would get cursed. Mm. Moloch's curse would be a- upon you and upon your family. So some kind of economic deprivation would take place. And that was the whole idea behind the worship of Moloch. And uh, I know I'm going a little long on this uh, history lesson, but... Uh, the one thing that's very interesting is uh, I mentioned before the word Topheth. So that was the place in which it was him. It means, I've read different things that it means place of fire, but uh, it derives also from the Hebrew word Toph, which means uh, to drum or tambourine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea being that the, the priests or whoever was doing this would play drums in order to drown out the sound of the screaming children when they were being burned Mm. so that their parents wouldn't have a change of heart. Mm. And another thing that's very interesting is in that, in that King's passage, Topheth is referred to as in the Valley of Hinnom. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Hinnom is South of Jerusalem and is also uh, transliterated as Gehinnom. So, so Valley of Hinnom, Gehinnom, where we get the word Gehenna. Okay, so it became the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched because the word Gehenna is used by Jesus and in the New Testament to refer to hell. Mm. So hell is the Greek word Gehenna or Gehinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. So basically, before Israel entered the land, this was the place where the babies were burned. And it became the garbage dump and is also the analogy for hell referenced in the New Testament. So that's the brief history lesson of, of Moloch worship in Topheth, which is very sad and very disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tremendously, I mean, disturbing, grotesque that, you know, you can't, there, there's no words. For <laughs> no. How awful that is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so hell kind of, you know, maybe is the most appropriate um, but but even that is, yeah, it's tricky to it's tricky to put that in the words. So I mean, could 
draw yeah. draw a connection for us here though i mean so sure we're talking here about you know idolatry of moloch and you're you're you know very capably kind of laid out some of the biblical passages and and um, what those connections uh, are in scriptural terms what are the connections today like how okay. how is that relevant today and how, how do we see some of that playing out as, yeah. as you understand it well how i try to understand it is <clears throat> these ancient idols you know they had statues they had they had images right but behind every idol is you know some kind of principle some idea and i mentioned before that the purpose of worshiping Moloch and offering your firstborn child, it was typically the firstborn child, was to gain economic blessing. For whatever reason, the people of that, the Amorites, and then later Israelites started doing this too, which is, you know, where God was upset with them for it. Um, you know, they honestly believed that they needed to do this to get economic blessing, to get the, to get an increased family, right? So... So that's the idea behind it. You would sacrifice your first child in order to get a future economic blessing and prosperity. Hmm. So just take that parallel, that principle, if you will, and apply it to, let's say, modern-day abortion. What's typically, I mean, you know, it, it would seem a lot of the times, you know, pregnancies that are unwanted or unplanned or unexpected, it's the, so it's the first pregnancy, the first child— they're unborn, right? But most of the reasons why abortions take place is because it's an inconvenience to uh, the mother or to the, the mother and father, right? So it's the bad timing. Uh, it would impact um, their ability to go to school or a career, mm. or it would cost money to raise a child, which it does. It does cost money and sacrifice to provide, you know— food and clothing, shelter, and everything for... So most of the time in our culture, yeah, there are cases of rape and incest, that's true, but most of the time it is a matter of convenience. And the idea being that if I get rid of this child now, this unborn child now, I will be better off in the future. I can have a bigger family. I can I can save up my money and be prepared to be a better parent in the future. So the principle has not changed. It's still, I will make this sacrifice now for the future economic, typically economic yeah. blessing. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I, I think that's a really interesting angle that we, you know, when abortion is discussed, it, it usually is not brought up in economic terms. And, it, it, you know, that doesn't tend to be the frame in which we think of it. I remember having um, a very uh, blunt conversation with mm -hmm. uh, with a person who you know is very very near and dear to my heart, very close to me, um, who is who who identifies as pro choice, mm -hmm. and th this person is also um, strongly. Uh, I don't, don't want to. It's I don't want to throw out such a loaded word. Um, identifies strongly as as a feminist. Right yeah. now, that could mean a lot of different things, and I, I don't want to. This is not a show about sure. feminism and we unpacking have all a the show about waves, that with all our own waves. Of yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I'm not trying to unpack too much of that. Sure. But one of the things that this person mentioned was was why kind of drawing some of those similar lines about why abortion was so crucial to the feminist movement and to women's empowerment generally, and it was cast you know, again. This person was being very blunt. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, it was very much. Uh, framed in economic terms. And it was like, yeah. look, you know, 
for, for so long, you know, men go to work and would be the breadwinners of the family and would make, you know, an income and, and women could not. A lot of that was in part what she was saying was a lot of that was because, you know, they would, they would have to, they were seen by employers as in some ways less reliable or higher risk because they could get pregnant and may then leave the workforce. They might then, you know, drop out from employment yeah. or have to take a substantial amount of time off that mm-hmm. the employer would then have to cover for that amount of money. Um, sure. So, so what what she was saying was um, abortion kind of freed sexual activity uh-huh. so that you would that you would not then as a woman have to worry about the economic repercussions you would not lose the economic you would blessing. not lose that blessing right so right. i just want to read uh, this is just a really quick clip sure. from an opinion piece written in the new york times okay. this was written in 2017 um and this is just a the the, the piece is called why abortion is a pro- progressive economic issue a uh, quick paragraph here economics frequently drive women to seek an abortion in the first place Unintended pregnancies have become increasingly concentrated among low-income women, who by 2011 were more than five times as likely to experience one as those with greater means. Among women getting an abortion, a 2004 survey found, the most frequently cited reasons were that a new child would interfere with education or work, or that women couldn't afford to have a baby at that time. Abortion rates rose during the recent recession, particularly among low-income women, as they had they and their parents... Uh, partners, excuse me, had lost jobs uh, and income. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's it's remarkable the connection oh, yes. between um, abortion and economics, and and how that whole narrative gets couched in uh, women's liberation uh, language and and some of the some of the feminist movement. Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. and just kind of vi- validating some of what you're saying. Yeah. So so okay. G- granted, there's there's at least in in the in the sense of kind of abortion and its connection to economic prosperity. Granted, there the possibility of some connection there. Mm-hmm. Um, how have we seen that come up most recently? Like that, you know, we're, I'm thinking in particular of you know um, a law that was recently passed in um, New York, in New York. Uh, called the Reproductive Health Act, and then there was also legislation proposed by state legislator Kathy Tran in Virginia, mm-hmm. um, and and <clears throat> in both of these cases. There was a lot of celebration of uh, of abortion and kind of the, the the freeing of it. You know, f- I think in in New York in that case they they chanted "Free abortion on demand. We can do it. Yes, we can." Right, um, and you know, and then I think Como lighted up the World Trade Center pink, pink. in in celebration of that of that passing. Yeah. And then similarly in Virginia. Um, they didn't pass the law. In they didn't pass the law in Virginia. Tabled. Exactly, it's been tabled. For, is my understanding for the time being, uh, but legislation was passed that was. You know, there's this clip of uh, uh, Tran uh, going back and forth in, in dialogue about it, basically acknowledging that up to you know and through the third trimester, um, even up to I think the point of dilation, uh, you could have an, an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the following day, the governor of Virginia was likewise on a radio show and, and, and ended up kind of uh, defending infanticide. Um, yeah, what he said was something to the fact that after the baby was born, they would make it comfortable. And then yes. her, the woman and the doctor would, would discuss. discuss it. Exactly, exactly. I- implying that a decision could be made after it was born correct. and comfortable correct, whether to keep it or not. Correct, correct. So um, w- w- what's the connection here? So in one sense, it feels like not a whole lot has changed. It, it, so in the sense that um, 
you know, I, I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the discussion and and understandable shock and horror from those who are in the pro life community. Um, it was kind of bound up with, you know, oh my gosh, like it's so blunt now, like up and yeah. through the third trimester, like it's just in your face. It is. Um, legally, that's been the case. No, it has. Right? Like, so I think uh, we, we refer back to Roe v. Wade, but then there was also Doe Do v. Bolton. And Doe v. Bolton kind of, um, I mean, I'm, I'm summarizing a little bit here, but it broadened the the reasons why – so, you know, uh, Roe v. Wade had, I think, initially some protections in place. Well, it meant to be safe, legal, and rare. Safe, legal, and rare. Doe v. Bolton, I think, passed the same day, kind of came along and broadened this notion of, of quote-unquote, health um, of the mother, mm -hmm. you know, including familial health, mm -hmm. which can – the word health was intentionally left broad, or, or mental health or emotional health, um, that those could be legitimate reasons. So legally, with respect to what is permissible – uh, in abortion, not much has changed, but there is something interesting. We were talking about this before we the were. show uh, that has been changed in the New York instance yeah. about personhood. You want to? Yeah, speak I'll to explain that? that. So let me get some context. Okay, so you know, uh, although might, many people might not like it or agree with it, our culture, particularly American society, has its foundations upon the Judeo-Christian worldview, and that includes God's laws. And if you just just look up, you know, Blackstone. He's a famous uh, uh, um, uh, lawyer in the, uh, I think, the uh, 1700s, maybe 1800s as well, who helped, uh, made a commentary in English common law. Uh, he was a Christian. And uh, anyways, many laws in the United States provide that um, if a pregnant woman is killed, that the murderer would be held for double homicide. Okay, so... So many states have these laws or had these laws in place because we inherently recognized the value of the unborn child, okay? Um, and that is based on a law in Exodus chapter 21. And I'll just read that law from verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And that's not meant to um, uh, invoke uh, revenge. It's meant to evoke the punishment should fit the crime. Right. So proportionality. The proportionality yeah. piece. If the child were to die in this instance in Exodus, the man who who caused the death of the unborn child would be liable and would give his own life. Yeah. He would be held accountable for murder, essentially, there. And that law is a foundation for many uh, laws in the United States. Now, the problem, though, is you run into this, this difficulty if you are a pro-choice person or, or politician. Here's the problem. We allow for abortion up until moment of birth. But what about these laws that still punish murderers for killing unborn children if they kill the pregnant woman, right? It seems like there's a disconnect there. How can we charge yeah. a murderer with double homicide when we are okay with abortion up until the day of delivery? And so in New York, what they did is they had to try to get rid of that inconsistency. Now, they didn't do it by getting rid of abortion. Rather, they got rid of the idea that a 
that a, that a, a man or a, a murderer could be held accountable for killing an unborn child. And uh, in that law, I have it printed out here uh, from New York in line number 44, they, the, the New York government redefines person. And it says, quote, person, when referring to the victim of a homicide, means a human being who has been born and is alive. So right there, the idea of personhood is not applied to an unborn child uh, when, it, when we're talking about a victim of a homicide. Okay, so right now, as it stands in New York, if a if a murderer were to kill a pregnant woman, he's only held accountable for her death. If a man were to assault a woman and punch her or kick her so that she loses the pregnancy, he could probably only be um, held accountable for assault against a woman. He can't right. be held accountable for murdering the unborn child. So that's what they, they did. They basically stripped personhood from unborn children yeah. in New York. Yeah. And so that's kind of like a bigger implication, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they've always allowed for abortion, but now... They're just trying to be consistent. Yeah, I was going to say, it's consistency. They're trying yeah. to iron out all the wrinkles across their law. Right. And that's the very scary part of it. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> you know, a lot of times, you know, some, some you know, these conversations get, um, get muddied by um, the bringing up of use cases that are uh, either non-applicable or... Mm-hmm. Um, so far at the margins that mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they make ba- bad case law. You know, case law is not like marginal cases don't make good case law, <laughs> yeah, right? You know, you, 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 you make law off of what happens the majority of the time. Very general. Very generally, exactly. Um, and so it, this is, you know, implicated, I think, sim- related to what you were just talking about where, you know, I, I hear often, um, you know, in, in defense of the life of the mother, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that in the third trimester, the mother is able to be protected. So if there's anything that's life-threatening, um, then abortion could provide a, a needed protection. So I just want to read out mm-hmm. a, a couple of different things here. Um, so when the, uh, the law in New York was, was passed, um, kind of part of it being couched in this language of defense of women, um, a couple of different doctors, uh, called out the following. This this is from Dr. Lawrence K. Koning, um, quote, as an OBGYN physician for 31 years, there is no medical situation that requires aborting or killing the baby in the third trimester to save the mother's life. Just deliver the baby by C-section and the baby has a 95% survival rate with readily available NICU care even at 28 weeks. C-sections is quicker and safer than partial birth abortion for the mother. Um, this is from Dr. Omar L. Hamada, quote, I want to be clear I want to clear something up so that there is absolutely no doubt. I'm a board-certified OBGYN who has delivered over 2,500 babies. There's not a single fetal or maternal condition that requires third trimester abortion. Not one. Delivery, yes. Abortion, no. This from Dr. David McKnight. Quote, as a board-certified practicing OBGYN for over 30 years, I need to say publicly and unequivocally that there is never a medical reason to kill a baby at term. When complications of pregnancy endanger a mother's life, we sometimes must deliver the baby early. But it is always with the intent of doing whatever we can, uh, whatever we can to do it safely for the baby too. The decision to kill an unborn baby at term is purely for convenience. It is murder. God help us. Yeah. Um, God help us is right. And there's a couple of different quotes that are pulled from pulled from this article. So I, it, it's it's interesting to me 
that um, you know even even the language that is used in in defense of the mother or or protecting um, you know protecting who who would in this case uh, many would uh, many would think would be vulnerable were these laws to be repealed. Um, it's just the opposite. It's it's just the opposite that the the vulnerability in this case with respect to the the abortion really is with the child and in in cases where the mother's life is threatened there are alternatives that are it sounds like from these quotes even safer for the mother um with the intent to deliver the baby now, successfully now that's interesting is that let's take that and i'm gonna i'm gonna throw some idolatry language in there so what you're saying is some people think that moloch is a provider moloch does provide protection for his people moloch is wise and if you don't serve Moloch, it could lead to the harming of women. Correct. Exactly. Correct. So just think about it in those terms. Um, idols don't, see, the idols don't change. They change their names. Right. So Moloch's name now is women's health. Choice. Call them choice. Call them human autonomy. Reproductive health. Reproductive yeah. health. Call them whatever. It's interesting. I was trying to trace the history of Moloch worship up until... The modern era. Now, here's an interesting. I'll go back to my my history lesson here. So, all right. So, fast forward a little bit. The the Ammon the uh, the Canaanites. They're basically kicked out of the land of Israel. Some of them obviously still uh, live there when Israel takes over because Israel does not purge them all. Now, if you if you study the a group called the Phoenicians, Phoenicians, they are related to the Canaanites. Now, the Phoenicians are a seagoing peoples in the Mediterranean, in the ancient world. And they settle a city called Carthage, if you're familiar with that city. Mm. So Carthage is like the antithesis of Rome back in the, uh, back in the ancient world. They, the, the Punic Wars, uh, Hannibal, the general Hannibal is from Carthage. Um, and Carthage is eventually destroyed by the Roman Empire. Uh, and then the Roman Empire becomes number one throughout the Mediterranean. But Carthage was settled by the Phoenicians who are related to the Canaanites. And there's a god that Carthage worshipped called Baal Haman. And he, he demanded child sacrifice. And, um, and, and his name later on becomes known as Cronus. Okay, For those of you who might not be familiar with Cronus, that's the Greek Greco-Roman name given to Baal Haman, who was also known as Moloch. Okay, and Cronus is the god who eats his children, who devours his children. There's actually a famous painting of Cronus devouring his children. But here is what the ancient Greek historian Plutarch says about the Carthaginians. Here's what he says. Um, he talks about them uh, uh, doing, he's, that they shouldn't be offering sacrifices to Cronos. Here's what he says. No, but with full knowledge and understanding, they themselves offered up their own children. And those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without a tear or a moan. Should she utter a single moan or let fall a single tear, she had to forfeit the money, and her child was sacrificed nonetheless. And the whole area before the statue was filled with a loud noise of flutes and drums and took the cries with a loud noise of flutes and drums, took the cries of wailing so that it should not reach the ears of the people. 
So he stops there and goes on from there. So he's describing, Plutarch is describing how the Carthaginians engaged in child sacrifice, using the flutes, the drums, and the tambourines to drown out the cries of children. And women were not allowed to moan or shed a single tear. Yeah. Now, think about it today in our with the issue of abortion. Um, you know, we have clinics that they go to. We can call that Topheth, right? We can call that the Valley of Hinnom. Certain places of the, where the altar is, right? There's high priests that perform the sacrifice for you, you know, those so-called doctors, right? And then they have assistants sometimes coaching the women, whispering in their ear, supporting them, strength, trying to encourage them. It's okay, you're doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing. Um, because sometimes in those places there's, there's Christians that are trying to hand out tracts or maybe, um, maybe you know, talk to the women, and so there's there's counter encouraged them to there's, reconsider. There's, yeah, yeah, there's there's pro-choice or pro-abortion people there that are trying to prevent the Christian, you know, prevent them from hearing the the gospel or hearing the the Christians talk. Right. So it's almost like the drums and the tambourines trying to drown out the noise of anything that might that might uh, cause a person to think twice mm. about what they're about what they're doing. Yeah. And so and there's definitely money involved. Well, big time money yeah. involved in the abortion industry. And it seems like in our culture, especially with Planned Parenthood, anybody, like the idea of being sorrowful or even regretting the abortion yeah. is not welcome. That's what I was just going to say. You have to have shout your abortion. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was what str- uh, that was what stuck out to me in what you just read is, is, is shout your abortion and you have to be proud of it. And the, the voices of women who have had an abortion and express regret, you don't hear much of that Mm-mm. mantle taken up no. in in mainstream media or conversations uh, that the culture has about abortion. I mean, you hear it brought up by those who are pro-life yeah. and say, look, this is not loving to the mother. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, you, you, you don't hear all that all that often. One of the things too, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this ties back to the, the point that you made about personhood yeah. from the New York law, that 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 is um, only that is applicable when the there's an exception there, right? It, it was something like the exception is when the like a per, a person is identified as a person who has been born and is alive and is alive. But then I, I'll have to go go back and find yeah. the reference so I can cite it. But there was some caveat there where it's like if maybe what I'm thinking of mm-hmm. is just coming back to the point of the governor of Virginia. But even if they're alive, there's still this question about are are they really fully a person because we might still be we might still take their life oh no this is what it was if the if the individual uh who is being aborted survives the attempt mm-hmm. if they survive the attempt like you so you you tried to abort the child you tried to kill mm-hmm. murder the child the child is born anyway now can you let it die can you would you well do you finish the job oh knowing the child might survive or do you provide or so life-sustaining care. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think in there was one case. Again, I'll find the source. Yeah. Um, but where the answer was no, like even if the child, I don't want to provide false information. So yeah. if this is incorrect, please somebody jump out and say so. But if an abortion is attempted and fails, and the child is born, that it would still be legally permissible to then kill that child. Mm, I have to double check that one myself as well. That's very interesting. But you know now. <laughs> So this stuff is not new. Uh, it goes back. It goes back to ancient. It goes back to Carthage. It goes back to Rome. Um, 
I didn't I don't have the reference here, but uh Tertullian, the early Christian father, uh he lived in the two hundreds. He talks about in Rome how they they would have abortions and sometimes they would expose their children. And what that means is if you had a child and you didn't want it, you would just leave it outside of the city walls. And then the wild animals would come. Right? Mm. So Christians in the early Roman Empire, or in the middle of the Roman Empire, I should say, would, would go outside the city walls and rescue the babies and take them in. But uh, Tertullian actually talks about in his writings an, an instrument that's used. It's called the slayer of the infant. And he talks about this instrument used in abortion, mm. Ambrose uh, Fractes, I believe. Uh, I mean, Greek slayer of the infant. But he describes how it was used and how they would uh, puncture, you know, certain uh, parts, organs yeah. of parts of the baby and pull it out and things like that. So the Romans had these, had these instruments and the Christians wrote about that yeah. too in the, early, in the early church. So this is not new. This has been going on for thousands of years. And today, as Christians, is our day to, again, uh, going along with the other early Christians, stand up for uh, the voice of, you know, you know speak for, the vo- for those who can't speak, right? To stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves, yeah. the unborn children. So I think Moloch is being worshipped more today than he ever was before. Because, I mean, we, in, a, in just the United States, is about a million babies a year. I doubt Moloch worship involved a million babies a year yeah. back in the ancient Near East. I mean, their population wouldn't have been that large anyway. Mm-hmm. So it certainly become more efficient. Yes, it has. Yeah, Proverbs 31, verse 8 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Um, you know, these are individuals who... Uh, cannot speak up for themselves, and one of the things that uh, we we do believe at, as Christians is that for those who cannot, who do not have a voice, who cannot speak up for themselves, and in this case in, in particular, um, those who are you know unborn children, who by the way we all once were. Um, That's right. <laughs> to to That's true. To to take a stand and speak up for them. Um, yeah, uh, it, we would love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out uh, two guys in a Bible dot podcast at gmail.com. The, there the number two is spelled out T W O two guys in a Bible dot podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, the number two mm-hmm. at two guys in a Bible. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the number two, two guys in a Bible. And you can also find us online, the number two, two guys in a Bible dot org. We're going to see if we can get the Gmail address with the number. Maybe I can change that. Yeah. But anyway, we, we love hearing, uh, hearing from you. And We've already got a couple questions we, so far. We do have a couple. We're, we're going to do like a mailbag episode. Bit. Yeah, like we a mailbag episode where we, we reach into there and, and pull out a couple of questions. Yeah. We've got some good ones. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, we, thank you again so much for listening. It's been a pleasure, and uh, God bless. Yeah, God bless. Take care. Hi, folks. My name is Eric Leupold with Two Guys in a Bible. Earlier in this episode... Dylan talked about how the New York Reproductive Health Act could potentially allow for uh, something like infanticide, such as in the case where a baby is born alive after a failed abortion. And the question remains, what does the law allow uh, to happen uh, after that? Uh, I want to read to you 
section Article 25-A of the Reproductive Health Act, specifically Section 2599BB, and starting in line 46, here's what uh, it states. Uh, the patient is within 24 weeks from the commencement of pregnancy, or there is an absence of fetal viability, or the abortion is necessary to protect the patient's life or health. Uh, the reason why this might allow, again, Dylan and I are not lawyers, but uh, it seems like the wording here of this law is broad enough to allow uh, for potentially uh, a baby born alive uh, after a failed abortion to either be allowed to die or to or to be killed. Uh, like the absence of fetal viability. Well, how do we and how do we define that? Fetal viability, what prior to birth or after the baby is born? How viable is it? Well, that depends, right, on how much care you provided, what kind of uh, medical support you give. A, uh, a baby that's uh, obviously premature. Um, or, and, this, and the next part of that statement says, next portion of that statement says, or the abortion is necessary to protect the patient's life or health. And again, protecting someone's life or health, well, does that include mental health? I mean, if, if taking care of or trying to, you know, uh, keep that uh, baby alive after a failed abortion, would that you know, still affect the health, the mental health, the stress health of the mother, right? So, you know, these these terms are broad enough, uh, I think, that uh, perhaps an argument could be made for uh, allowing infanticide with this law. So I just wanted to give that information to you. We had addressed it earlier, uh, but wanted to get uh, the actual source document for you. So, again, thank you again uh, for listening.